All right. This morning we'll be drawing our focus upon Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. We'll be focusing on worship and its purpose, and in particular we'll be looking at uh, worship in the form of singing. Now to be clear, contrary to what many Christians believe, um, there are many different forms and expressions of worship. And what I mean is that when you leave a church service and say, oh, we had a wonderful and blessed time in worship, most people, not all, but most people will think only of the time spent singing. They will not consider anything else. They equate singing with worship as if they're synonymous, but they are separate things. Singing is an expression of worship, but in its substance, it is not the same thing as worship. Often people do not consider the word preached, prayed, read, and seen in the sacraments as worship. And all, all too often, I say this from my exper experience with my charismatic, charismatic upbringing, there seems to be this general tone that people put up with the preaching just so they can get to the singing because they consider that to be the true worship. As if they, they think, like, let's just push through the sermon so we can get to the good stuff where God actually blesses his people. As if the preaching of God's word is not a blessing to his people and something that we should be excited about. And it also seems that people will select the church they want to join based upon the musical performance of the musicians and their charisma, the personal emotional experience gained through the music, rather than the church's commitment to sound and biblical teaching. Have you ever heard someone who is looking for a church say something along the lines of, well, the preaching was fine and the people were friendly enough, but there just seemed to be something lacking in the worship, and they're, they're speaking of the singing, the music. It felt dead or empty or lifeless. There's no emotion, and for that reason, we'll just keep looking until we find something that suits our needs. Without a doubt, there is an overemphasis on singing within the church so that it takes priority over everything else. Even though the command to sing is only mentioned a handful of times within the Bible, Strangely enough, even though there is an overemphasis placed on singing in the church, and there is emphasis on singing, we will be speaking on singing this evening, we ought to sing, but even though there is an overemphasis placed upon singing in the church, there is at the same time a massive misunderstanding of its purpose, it seems. So my aim today, though there is much more to be said about singing than I can fit into a single sermon, is that we leave here with a clear understanding of what it is that we are doing when we sing, when we join together in song, so that we sing with joy and that we do so in light of what Christ has done for us. So if you would please stand and join me as we read the inspired and errant, sufficient word of God. Colossians 3, 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its eternal truth upon your hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And we ask that you would teach us today. Give us sight where we are blind. 
Open our ears where we are deaf. Enable us to retain its truth and give us grace to follow where it leads. It is in Christ's holy name we ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. So as you all know, every time we jump to a new portion of Scripture that we haven't been working through on a weekly basis, and we haven't been working through any book on a weekly basis for quite some time now, it's helpful to know the context of the book that we are studying. So before we arrive to our text, I want us to see who this letter was written to and what was being addressed, and briefly look back at chapter 1 and work our way up through chapter 3, up to verse 16. So first, as I already mentioned, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul to Colossae. It was written around A.D. 60-62, while Paul was imprisoned in Rome. And this was also around the same time he wrote to the Ephesians and Philemon. Now, Paul had never visited Colossae, but in the first chapter of this letter, we learned that he had been in contact with a man by the name of Epaphras, who lived in Colossae, and it appeared... Or it appears that Epaphras had visited Ephesus. Don't get those confused. Epaphras visited Ephesus while Paul was preaching there. And by God's grace, Epaphras heard the gospel under Paul's ministry, placed his faith in Christ, and returned to Colossae where the church began to grow as he preached the same gospel that he heard from Paul. So this goes back to the sermon we heard a few weeks ago from Pastor Dave. Evangelize, who knows what the Lord will do. We have an example here of one man hearing the gospel, returning home. He preached, and the church grew on to flourish. But one of the issues of concern in this young Colossian church that Epaphras had informed Paul of was that the church was being influenced by both pagans and Jews, and in particular, these were most likely Jewish mystics known as the Merkabah. The overall understanding within Colossae was that there were evil and hostile powers, that served as a threat to the people, and these hostile powers controlled fate, bringing plagues, death, natural disasters, lack of crops, illness, any kind of ill that could be conceived. Uh, it was blamed upon these hostile spirits, and both the pagans and the Jewish mystics were influenced by this philosophy, and they were fearful of these hostile spirits, and in order to be free from them, both the pagans and the Jews required a form of asceticism meaning they had to abstain from certain things for their protection. And this teaching came from those who were considered to be spiritual elitists, or they, they claimed to be spiritual elitists from both camps. These were men who claimed to have obtained a higher spiritual experience, claiming they had visions of angels, seeing the heavenly places and so forth, and as a result of their obedience and their higher spiritual knowledge they were freed from these hostile powers and this is called um, this is a form of Gnosticism where you gain knowledge not from scripture but from some higher plane of existence it's knowledge from your own personal experience and they claim to have a higher knowledge of the truth and we see this today in churches it's not all that uncommon anymore we see this in um, places like the NAR the New Apostolic Reformation where you have Gnostics in Bethel who claim to have visions and have seen Jesus. You have people who write books about going to heaven and hell. And as they do this, they prop themselves up in an elitist position as someone who should be listened to and respected as if they have authority. 
and the, and the idea they have is that they have a, that their relationship with God, because of their experience, is more genuine, it's more sincere, and it's more true because they've received this higher knowledge that cannot be known from God's word. And so ultimately, the sufficiency of Christ was being denied um, to the Colossian church here. If, if Christ died for you, but there is something else that must be done to bring you into a deeper favor with God or higher knowledge of him, so that you may be protected from these rogue spirits, then your trust is not in Christ's finished work, but it's upon yourself and it's upon your own performance. And so these spiritual elitists were saying they knew the way to safety, but in reality it leads to harm. They claimed they could keep people from danger, but the elitists, they are the danger. They say they know the way to freedom, but they are leading the church into slavery. And so Paul is combating this teaching, and he starts off by teaching the preeminence of Christ. It is by Christ that all things were created in heaven, earth, visible, invisible. All authority and dominions were created by him, and he holds all authority. He goes on to tell them that they have been made alive in Christ, that Christ has canceled the record of debt that stood against them, and he has disarmed and triumphed over all authorities. He reminds this young church that Christ is sovereign, that Christ has purchased them, that they are dead to their sins and alive in Christ. And in chapter 2, he goes on to say, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in, fe- in question of food or drink, festivals, new moons, Sabbaths. This would have been aimed at both the pagans and the Jews, food and drink would be pagans and Jews. The new moons, likely Jews, Sabbaths would be directed at the Jews or these Jewish mystics. And just a quick note, Paul is not saying there's no Christian Sabbath. He's speaking against the Jewish Seventh-day Sabbath. He's saying don't let anyone obligate you to this form of legalism, that you have to obey these commands that these Judaizers are placing upon you. In regards to their mystic practices, Paul tells them, let no one disqualify you. He goes on to encourage the church. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and that the regulations opposed upon them by the mystics had an appearance of wisdom, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So these Jewish mystics, also informed by the dualistic thought that all matter is evil and all spiritual is good, were telling the Christians to abstain from these earthly material things to be freed from the threat of these spiritual powers. In chapter 3, Paul tells them, since you are dead in your sins and you're alive in Christ, put to death, therefore, that which is earthly in you. So the emphasis by the Gnostics was abstaining from that which is external, and Paul says to stay away from that which is earthly in you, internal. Paul tells them, ignore these men who seem wise, but they are foolish, They tell you to stay away from external things by saying to be worried about your sinful inclinations. And so the sphere of influence in this church was broad. You had mystics promulgating their heretical teachings. You had pagans worshiping false gods around them, which would surely surely influence the church. And then also there are many Gentiles in this church who would be tempted to go back to their old sinful behaviors. And this is where Paul tells us to put off sinful behavior and put on righteousness. It's all predicated upon what Paul has already said. You've been made alive in Christ. You are dead to sin, so live like it. 
take off the garments of the world that you wore when you belonged to the world, and now that you're a new creature in Christ, those clothes of the world no longer fit you. You must put on the new. Don't listen to elitists. Don't embrace more practices from the world around you and resist the sin within you. That's the context that we come to Colossians 3.16 is the context of sanctification, of growing in holiness. Put off, put on, and we trust the word of God. So in conjunction with Paul telling them to ignore these people, put off sin, he issues a command that will assist them in their knowledge of the truth and in holy living. And Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What is the word of Christ? It is what it sounds like. They are the words that proclaim Christ. What words proclaim Christ? The Holy Scriptures. It is the divine revelation that we hold in our hands, which has come from God and speaks to who Christ is, what he has done, and what he's going to do. The Old Testament foretold the coming of Christ by the, by the prophets. In the New Testament, the apostles document his entrance into the world, his life, death, and resurrection, and tells us he's coming again, and he gives instructions to the church. The book we hold in our hands informs us of all that we need for faith and practice. And so what does this have to do with living a holy life? Let the word of Christ dwell among you. Well, if God's people are to put off sinful behaviors and they're to put on righteous ones, we need to know what is sinful and what is righteous. And how do we differentiate between what's right and what's wrong? It's God's word. God's word informs us. By what other means could we know without a shadow of a doubt how it is that we are supposed to live if we do not have the word of God? The pagan and Jewish mystics taught by their higher knowledge apart from the word of Christ, they taught ways that seemed wise, they seemed righteous, but it was false. And they sought to take captive these Christians in Colossae that's what Paul tells us in 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human traditions. One of the ways that we, are, we see to it that we're not taken captive by false teachers or by the influence of the world and to hold fast, is to hold fast to the word of Christ, testing all things by the scriptures. Shows us how we ought to live and it also shows us what is true, who we ought to listen to, and who we ought to avoid. Next is next thing to make mention of is that this is a command. Paul, an apostle commissioned by Christ, himself is issuing a command to the Colossian church. This is not a recommendation. In the Greek, the words let and dwell are placed together, and it reads, uh, the, the sentence would read in the Greek, the word of Christ let dwell in you richly. And the word let dwell is Enoiketo. And this word is a present active imperative. And what that means is it's imperative, it's a command, it's an exhortation, and it's a present active command. That is to say, from this point on without ceasing, from now until the day you die, let the word of Christ dwell in you. What does it mean to let the word of Christ dwell in us? Well, it means to take up residence. The idea is that 
of someone who takes up residence in a house. So the reeds, for example, are taking up residence in a new house. When they arrive, they will furnish the house. They'll put things in their proper place. They'll put things in order. They will take some time. It always tells to take some time. But over time, houses that are being inhabited by people, you're brought from disorder to order. Now, Paul says to let the word of Christ dwell in you. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the church. He's not speaking to an individual. This letter is addressed to the church of Colossae. And the idea is that the word of Christ should dwell among them. That is, when they come together, the word of Christ must be central to their gathering. All they do must be centered around the words that proclaim Christ. Why should they be centered around the words that proclaim Christ? Because that is how God has chosen to grow his people. It's not by the inventions of man. It's not by carnal methods. It's not by the Gnostic and mystic practices that we see some churches giving themselves over to and some of these people tempted to in Colossae. It is by his word that he grows his church. When the church assembles together and gives itself over to the study of God's word, centered around Christ, God uses that to work in each of our hearts and produce good fruit. The word of Christ is central around our gathering. And this word is to dwell richly. That is, the word of Christ is to dwell in abundance within the life of the believer within the church, not lacking, always present within our minds and directing our steps that we would have the heart of the psalmist and be able to say with him, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. God's word is to dwell so richly in us and to be so present as we gather together on the Lord's day that all times will be greatly influenced by what God says and not the world. That the wells of our minds will be overflowing with the knowledge of God's word. We are to let the word of Christ dwell richly among us as we gather here. And as we make use of God's word, the Holy Spirit applies it to our hearts that it would direct us wherever we go. And if the word of Christ does not dwell among us here, then we are in danger of being shaped by the world's standards and not God's. It's likely that we'll begin to put on sin and put on the garments of the world. And it is to dwell among us in what way? It is to dwell among us in teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. This tells us that when we come together to worship God, our minds ought to be engaged. We are to teach one another and instruct one another in what is true. And if there is error, it must be confronted. And again, why is this important? Because whether we realize it or not, the world is unrelenting in its attempts to teach and admonish us in worldly wisdom, just as they were doing in Colossae. People in this world are not born religiously neutral, being born with a clean slate. Rather, we are born in this world as sinners, and we need to have our minds renewed. And so when we come to faith by the Holy Spirit drawing us and look to Christ in faith, is by God's word that we learn, we are taught, and we are corrected in the way that we ought to go. So in a broad sense, we are all called to be teachers and students. Each of us are to teach, 
We're to be taught. We're to extend correction and to receive correction. And obviously not all of us are called to be pastors or elders or preach formally, but we all have a general calling to teach and to correct each other within the body when we gather together. There's much that can be learned when older people come alongside younger folk, when younger folk come alongside the older. There's much wisdom that we can grow in and knowledge that we can assist each other. We are to teach and admonish each other in all wisdom. And what is this wisdom? Again, it is the word of God, the word of Christ that Paul tells us at the beginning of the verse that's to dwell among us. God's word is our wisdom. It is God's word that both teaches and admonishes us. We are foolish and we need to be taught what is true. We need to unlearn lies that we've been told. And again, most of us think pretty well of teaching. We, we like to learn, especially in like the reform camp. We take pride in knowledge, but we don't often think so well of admonishment, which is correction. We don't like the idea of confrontation and warning. But if we care for one another and we love one another, we will issue warnings. We will confront one another when we see a brother or sister in sin. We are to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. Psalm 19, 7 and 8. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. We are simple, and God's word makes us wise. God's word gives light to our eyes and shows us how to walk. So we know that the word of Christ is to dwell among us, ritually teaching and admonishing one another. And by what means are we to teach and admonish one another? Well, Paul tells us by what means. It's in singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Here we have a biblical imperative. It's a command for the church when it gathers together on the Lord's day to teach and admonish one another by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And again, the one another points us to the reality that this is to be done corporately. Because if we are not with one another, we cannot sing to one another. You can sing in private if you'd like. You can sing in your homes. You can sing in your cars. That's fine. I do that as well. But here, specifically, Paul is talking to the church, and he says that we are to sing to one another. And the reasons for our singing are twofold. And the first is to teach and to admonish one another. Have you ever considered that when we gather together on the Lord's day and lift our voices in unison, singing to our God that we are at the same time teaching and admonishing one another? If the church doesn't realize that they are teaching one another as they sing, then I can assure you that little care will go into the types of songs that are sung. The content will not be a high priority. And when the church overemphasizes singing without the proper understanding of singing, then the emphasis will be placed on an area that it shouldn't be placed in. And what I mean is, uh, how, how does the church largely view singing? How does the American church largely view singing? What is its purpose? I'd say one is entertainment. 
It's a means to draw people into the doors. It's about catering to the carnal man, more so than caring for the people of God. It poses itself as worship, but it's entertainment. And it doesn't take very long to realize this if you go on YouTube and type up some videos um, trying to find what kind of worship is going on in churches. It's astounding. Circuses, performances. So that's one misunderstanding. That's one purpose they see of it as entertainment. And because that is the purpose of singing in the church, they put all they have into entertaining people rather than teaching people. And so we all ask ourselves the same thing. Though we don't entertain in the same way, do we view singing as entertainment? Do we look to be entertained by the songs that we sing? Another way that the church, or another view of singing in the church, is that it's thought to be a purely emotional experience. And again, this is largely rooted in Gnosticism, whereby people have higher knowledge by way of their emotional experience. And this comes in varying degrees. There are very mild forms that I would say take place in many churches where the people's emotions are moved and they can be manipulated by the chord progressions, by the melodies, by the ambient settings and the lights. And then there are extreme forms like Bethel where they get this, what they call a spiritual high and they liken it to being drunk in the spirit. You find in Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, these men are not drunk as you suppose. They interpret that to mean that they were acting drunk, running around, passed out. That's not what was happening. Or they draw it from Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And they equate being drunk with wine with being filled in the Spirit as if they are similar things, but they look nothing alike. Being drunk with wine leads to debauchery, but what does being filled with the Spirit look like? He goes on to say, be filled with the Spirit, address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. That's one symptom of being filled with the Spirit, singing and addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And a quick note on 518 as we were there, it has a very similar context as 316. He tells them, don't give yourselves over to debauchery. Be careful how you walk, not as wise, but unwise. And again, we see the focus on the mind. There's a focus on our minds as we worship. The Gnostics that look for that emotional experience, that emotional high, their idea is to turn your mind off. Wait for the spirit to move, and what you feel can give you something greater than we could ever receive directly from God's word. That true blessing is found in the individual experience. And the only problem, or one of the many problems with that, is that our emotions can deceive us. Our emotions are not accurate. How many times do we doubt our assurance? How many times do we doubt God's love for us? People can be manipulated by melodies, by chords and ambience, but we know that we are not to base what we, believe, what we believe on how we feel. We are to base what we believe on what God has said and he's told us in his word. I'm not saying that emotion should be absent from singing. 
and we'll get to that shortly, but these shallow, self-induced emotions ought not be the goal of our singing. That's not the purpose of our singing, to receive these shallow emotions. If people think the reason for singing is performance, they will give you performance. And if they think the reason for singing is an emotional experience, they will create an environment where you will receive that emotional experience. But Paul tells us that that's not the reason for our singing. The reason for our singing is to teach and to admonish one another. One of the primary reasons that our music has changed so much over the years, not only in its form, we've removed the drums and the guitars, electric guitars at least, but also in its content is because of verses like this. I'm not going to be controversial and start a fight over instrumentation. I don't think there's anything inherently sinful with drums, electric guitars. That's up to each church body and its pastors to use wisdom informed by, the God, by God's word to decide what's appropriate for their congregation. But I think understanding this verse will shape the, the instrumentation that we choose. Years ago when we had very, very loud music, which I know some people miss, before we play, the pastor at the time would always say, if you can't sing, don't worry about it. This music is so loud, no one will be able to hear you anyway. And I think that undermines the very purpose of our singing. We are supposed to hear each other sing. We are to teach and admonish each other in these psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I think it's vital that the church members or the members of the church hear each other sing. Why do I think that's important? Well, have you ever considered how we are stirred up in our faith whenever we hear the family who has suffered loss singing the words, whate'er my God ordains is right? Here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. To hear the one who has been abandoned or the one afflicted by sickness or the one who has come under financial ruin, sing next to you, it is well with my soul. Because my sins, not in part, but the whole, were nailed to the cross, and I bear them no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. When we sing, we are teaching one another, and we are being taught by the content of the songs we sing. And in these particular instances, in the times of suffering, we are being taught by these songs what it looks like to suffer in a way that's honoring to God. That's one of the blessings of singing the Psalms. We sing Psalm 130. From the depths of woe, I raise to thee a voice of lamentation. As we sing the Psalms, it doesn't require us to pretend that everything is fine. But it allows us to come to God in our distress and our anguish and confusion as we feel like we've been forsaken. And the psalm guides us as we cry out to God and it reminds us as we cry out in lamentation that his promised mercy is my fort, it's my comfort and my sweet support. And it calls us to wait for the day that Christ returns and frees us from all the pains of life. These songs teach us how we are to suffer. 
when we sing, not only are we teaching one another, and not only are these songs teaching us, but we are admonishing one another and being admonished by the songs as well. One particular song that always serves it to be a stern rebuke to me is the song, Not In Me. No humble dress, no fervent prayer, no lifted hands, no tearful song, no recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. I don't know about you, but I need to hear that. I need to be reminded, as the one who typically leads prayers, leads confessions, recites truths, and leads in song, that those things do not justify any sin, any single wrong that I commit in my life. I'm dependent upon the grace and mercy of God. We are taught, and we are admonished and corrected. We need to be reminded of the gospel regularly because we're so forgetful. We may never forget it mentally, right? We will mentally assent to the gospel. We know the gospel, but functionally speaking in our lives, we constantly look to other things for our justification. We look to our performance. We look to ministry. We need to be reminded that it is by grace through faith that we are saved. And that truth is reflected in many of the songs we sing, and these songs serve as a good reminder to us. And because when we sing, we are teaching and admonishing one, one another, it is absolutely vital that what we sing be true. We must sing songs that are doctrinally rich. It must be intelligent or else we'll be teaching and admonishing each other with things that are possibly vaguely true, but with no real substance or at worst, downright lies. You can be sure, brothers and sisters, that every time the church comes together to sing, the church is learning, and they are learning truth, or they are learning lies. When we sing songs which are rooted strongly upon Scripture, we, we learn Scripture. We memorize them. We, dare I say, are letting the word of Christ take up residence. Bob Coughlin, he says, this is a paraphrase, when someone leaves a church service, they will not leave remembering every word of the sermon. You will not remember every word that I have said today, I promise. You will not remember every word that Dave preached last week, and you've already forgotten the sermons of last year probably. You take small bits of sermons and you retain them, but the entire sermon, unless you're taking notes, is lost. But when we leave, we remember the songs we sing. The songs stay with us. There's something about melody that helps us remember we talked about this last week, I believe. My wife and I believe Megan, I'm a C, I'm a C-H, I'm a C-H-R-S-T-I-N. That is in my head. I haven't sang that for, I don't know, how many years? I was probably 10 years old, 6 years old, I don't know. But these songs help us to retain these truths. And let that be a, a, a mention to, or a note for parents as well, that children retain the songs that we sing. We need to raise them up singing songs that are filled with biblical truth. They can retain it. They can retain it. So what are the psalms and the hymns and the spiritual songs that we are to sing? I'm sure that's something that you've been wondering. There is obviously much debate within the church on what are these psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. There are the, those who hold to exclusive psalmody who would say that they are just different words for psalms. Obviously, they sing psalms. 
but it, they seem to be used interchangeably throughout the New Testament a good deal. I think they can ultimately summed up in making melody to the Lord. I side with Dr. Waldron, and I believe Paul's point here is that there is to be a musical variety. That there is to be a musical variety. That's what we tried to do here. We have psalms. We began doing psalms a few years ago. We sing hymns, 1600s, 1500s, all the way up to new songs now by the Gettys. Whatever the variety may be, whatever we choose, it stands that it must be rooted upon the word of God. It must be true. Whatever it is that we sing, it must be true. Remember, we are to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And so the whole counsel of God, as much as, as, much as possible, ought to be sung through these different psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, which is why we have songs that touch on sanctification justification, adoption, the Trinity, Christ's incarnation, his death and resurrection, suffering, human sinfulness, assurance, all wisdom from the word of God, from the word of Christ, is to be sung to one another in a variety of songs. We teach ourselves the same truths in different ways with a variety of songs that speak to the same truth. We have one song that speaks to justification. We retain it. We learn another song that speaks to justification. It sheds new light. gives us a greater understanding while retaining biblical truth. And again, why must we teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? And I say again, because the world around us is teaching and admonishing us seeking to take us captive by their vain philosophy according to human tradition and not to Christ. That's one aspect. When the world attempts to teach us to find our security and possessions, that's what they find their worth in, we remind ourselves, my worth is not in what I own. When politicians tell us they can make America great again or they can build back better, we remind ourselves that we look for a city that hands have not raised, and we long for a country that sin has not stained. That our hope is not placed in the princes and rulers of this earth, but but Christ alone is our hope and he is our king. But not only do we confess truths in these songs that are counter-cultural as a reminder of the truth of God's word, but we also need to remind ourselves of the gospel graces that are given to us in Christ because we forget that as well. We are a danger to ourselves. We get so often focused on the world around us and think that's the biggest threat, but we are oftentimes a greater danger to ourselves and the world around us. When the accuser lay our sins before us and says, your sins are too many, we sing, yes, my sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. We need to be reminded of that. We sing, payment God will not twice demand first at my bleeding Savior's hand, And then again at mine. We need to remember that. As we sing these songs, we are being reminded of these fundamental truths. And by the Holy Spirit, God's word is marked in our hearts and minds. And it protects us from false teaching and provokes us to holy living. Teaches us, instructs us, and corrects us. 
but not only is our singing towards each other, it's also done with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Our singing is both horizontal and it's vertical. We teach and, and admonish one another as we sing horizontally. At the same time, we sing to God with thankfulness in our hearts vertically. Psalm 32, 11. This psalm is called a mascal, which means wisdom, psalm of instruction. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Be glad. Rejoice. Shout for joy. I know I was speaking on using music as a means to receive this emotional experience, but here we are told there's nothing wrong with being excited and singing, shouting for joy, and being glad in the Lord. Why should we be glad in the Lord? Well, the first verse of the, the, first verse of the psalm tells us, says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And this is motivation for us to sing and to sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Genuine worship is not lacking an emotion. Whether you have emotions of sorrow and you're pouring your heart out to God or out of joy, singing praises to God is the posture of the heart that provokes our worship. It is the Holy Spirit who's caused us to see, to cause us to behold the wonders of Christ, so that then, by this emotion or these affections for God and love towards Him, we then sing in response. Our worship is offered to God in light of who He is and what He has done. And again, this same line of reasoning that Paul used to the Colossians. He reminds them, up to three, that they have been made clean. Before he gets the, to the commandment to sing, he reminds them that the record of debt that stood against them has been canceled. He reminds them they are children of God, and therefore sing with thankfulness in your hearts. We also want to be watchful over ourselves, not to be like those in Matthew 15. The people who honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. We can have truth coming from our lips as we sing, but we can do so carelessly, and that's not honoring to God. At the same time, we can sing sincerely, but if we're not singing truth, well, that's not honoring to God. We don't want to sing truths without sincerity. And we don't want to sing lies sincerely. We want to sing truth sincerely. Our aim is to sing glorious truths about God and to him with the sincerity of our hearts. But this brings us to a problem of our sinful nature. As we desire to sing to our Lord with sincerity, can our singing ever be sincere enough to be worthy of God. Can the worship we offer in and of ourselves ever be genuine enough to be accepted by God? It's no. Not apart from the mediatory work of Jesus Christ. 
to borrow from Sam Waldron, who drew out this beautiful application. We are so defiled by sin that even the most beautiful songs of praise sung by the most renowned musicians throughout the world are not worthy of being accepted by God. Something that we look at and say, isn't that so spiritual? Surely God would receive that. Not apart from Christ. We are unworthy to worship the king. If the seraphim, this heavenly choir, these heavenly beings, have to veil their faces and their feet as they sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory, then what do you think will happen to you if you attempt to approach the Father in praise apart from the mediatory son, mediatory work of the Son? They have to veil their faces to the glory of God. Yet we are sinful man. Again, as Waldron says, our worship is only accepted within the context of the Trinitarian redemption. We worship in the Spirit. And what does that mean? Well, the Holy Spirit is the one who has opened our eyes to our sin. He teaches us and admonishes us by the word of God. He causes us to love Christ and he gives us hope in the midst of trial so that we may sing to the Father with thankful hearts. We worship in the Spirit. And so it is by the power of the Spirit that we lay our eyes upon Christ. And it is only by Christ that our worship is carried to the Father and made acceptable to him. Again, Ephesians 5, 18 through 20. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We sing by the power of the Spirit who prompts our worship, to the Father, and it's given by the mediatory work of the Son who purifies our work, because our work is not worthy of being accepted by a holy God in and of ourselves. The songs we sing are stained by sin. All of our works are tainted by sin. So though we aim to worship God rightly with sincerity, and we want to obey his word, we must remember that even as we strive to obey his commands, our worship is not acceptable apart from the Spirit and the Son. We are dependent upon God's grace and mercy to even be able to sing to him. It's only by God's grace and mercy that we're even able to address him in songs of praise. So for those of you who have faith, who are children of God, who've been placed in God's family, Know that he gladly, gladly receives your worship, and he receives it by the Son. And he commands us to worship him, and we are invited to worship him as sons and daughters. He's no longer, he's not, he doesn't stand before us as a righteous and angry judge, but he stands before us as a heavenly father, and he invites us to sing praises to him. As we sing to him, he blesses us by his word and the truths that we sing are reminded of and they are internalized within us. 
Our worship is only made acceptable by the triune God. And so by way of application, I don't really have much. I would ask, do we see our need? Do we see our need of a Savior that even what seems to be the best thing that we could possibly offer, singing praises to our God, is stained by sin? Do we see our need to be watchful of the lies of the world and the need to sing biblical songs, these biblical truths? Do we see the need that we need to remind ourselves of these truths because we are so forgetful? If we see our need, know that in Christ, all of your needs are met. And by him, we can now with thankful hearts approach our God and singing praise and glory to him. May we sing to God with thankfulness in our hearts in light of everything that Paul declared to the Colossians leading up to the command of saying that Christ is preeminent, he's worthy of our praise. That Christ has dominion, he's worthy of our praise. That our sins have been laid upon Christ, he is worthy of our praise. And the debt that we incurred for our sins has been canceled. He is worthy of our praise. And he would be worthy even if he hadn't done those things, but he has. He has graciously done those things for you. So as we consider what Christ has done, may we be a church that has resolved to let the word of Christ dwell among us richly so we may teach one another and admonish one another, be taught by the songs we sing based upon the word of God, and then offer our praises with thankful hearts to God, our Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the work of your Son, who died on the cross in our place, has made us acceptable. We ask that you would help us that the word of Christ would dwell among us in this church from now and throughout all of its days, that this church would be centered around the word of Christ, focusing upon what Christ has done and that we'd resist the teachings of the world and that we'd resist the lies that we hear within ourselves. We ask that you would do these things by the power of your Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.